Hi, I'm Ray Johnston and this is The Graphic Podcast. Graphic is a festival celebrating the art of graphic storytelling, animation and music at Sydney Opera House. Today's storyteller emerged during the revolutionary 80s British invasion of US comics, along with Dave Gibbons, Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, Dave McKean, and of course, longtime collaborator Peter Milligan. You're about to hear from a prolific creator who has done it all, from working with pre-Pixar computer animation, designing music videos, to his 35 years as a comic artist and writer. Here's Brendan McCarthy. Enjoy. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Ben Marshall. I'm co-curator of the Graphic Festival, along with Jordan Vazar. Can we have a big welcome, please, for Brendan McCarthy? I'm going to start my introduction for uh, Brendan McCarthy by reading out a couple of um, quotes from uh, colleagues of his, people who've been enormously influenced by him, who've gone on to influence many, many other people. Uh, Jamie Hewlett, the creator of Gorillas and Tank Girl, has said that every art form needs a game changer. From expressionism to surrealism, from the Beatles to the Sex Pistols, from film noir to the Nouvelle Vague, someone or something has always been there to give an art form a push in the different direction it needs to keep it alive. That's exactly what Brendan McCarthy and Peter Milligan did for comics, and I effing love them. So fantastic quotes and um, echoed by Grant Morrison, who in his book Super God said, in 1986, I was invited to the Birmingham Comic Convention. There I met the one-of-a-kind artist Brendan McCarthy. McCarthy was a styled and prickly genius whose hand has a direct line to his unconscious mind. Imagine you could take photographs of your dreams and you will have some idea of what McCarthy can do with his art. McCarthy minds his living dreams. Brendan's had a huge and varied career, as you're about to see. Comics, film, pre-Pixar, computer animation, and much else. My fascination with his work started in the 1990s with his work with Peter Milligan. I sort of voraciously followed everything I could get of his work, um, including the snippets of the legendary Mad Max 4, which I'm so pleased eventually came to light in such a stunning way. Um, We're really honoured to have him today. He's going to do a presentation and there will be time for questions at the end. And um, Brendan, thank you so much for being part of this festival. Thanks, Ben. Um, uh, Well, welcome, everybody, and it's nice to uh, be here. Um, uh, I thought the best way... I'm I'm going to assume most people don't know my work that well as I'm one of these kind of, you know, industry secrets, as they call them. Um, But uh, so I've, I've... put together a little slideshow which I'll click through and, and sort of comment on for about half an hour and then we'll, we, can, we, can, we can have a chat afterwards. And uh, it's just a, a little, some highlights from, you know, bazillions amounts of art. Um, uh, starting off in my, with my earliest comics and going through, leaving comics and going into movies, pop videos, then Fury Road and uh, recently back to comics again or graphic novels as we now call them. Brendan was part of the, the big wave of, of English comic book creators hitting the American comic book scene that sort of turned up Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman and things. Um, Brendan and Peter Milligan were there right at the very beginning and their influence was, was absolutely colossal. Um, and I find it fascinating looking at some of the earliest work you've done and still seeing the level of precision and detail uh, and influence that sort of went on to, to ripple far and wide. When I was a kid, I uh, used to read comics. Uh, th- back then, comics uh, were considered to be, you know, 
beneath the pale, basically. They were, a, you know, they were just for kids. They were idiotic, and you had to sort of read them either under the sheets or, you know, you didn't... They, they, they don't have the status that they had now. Um, um, I, I did like comics a lot, and I learnt about storytelling and writing and drawing... Uh, at a very young age, just from re- really studying comics. So, I mean, I'd, I'd read them, but I would also look at them probably more. I would read them once and then look at them about a thousand times. Um, and um, I saw, uh, after a while, though, I, I, I felt I'd grown out of them, and I went to art college and studied painting and film. And um, painting opened me up to surrealism the dadaists um, all sorts of different uh, uses of color abstraction all sorts of stuff and uh, the film studies um, um, you know i started to get an understanding then of uh, how film is cut together and um, movement and sound and how those two things together alter and create different realities um, I never forgot about comics, and I had a hankering to do, you know, a real comic that got published. Um, and um, also, and also in the minds of other people in that, at that time, um, I felt that, you know, why, aren't, why can't comics be like the Beatles or something? Why can't they be really good but also popular? And... Um, um, so I, I did have that mission, I think. If, if, if you like, as in the Blues Brothers, I had a mission. It was... Uh, I just wanted to do some really good comics. Uh, and uh, that was also in the minds of some other people who were from the same generation as I, people like Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, these guys. But we none of us knew each other. A comic called 2000 AD appeared, and it was like a whistle... Uh, we suddenly went, there's something going on with this comic and this is a venue where we can be seen. And almost everybody who went on to form part of what's known as the English invasion of American comics in the 80s worked at 2000 AD. It was the place where you strutted your stuff, you learnt how to do it, also you got paid. And um, the Americans started to notice this comic called 2000 AD which had this totally different attitude to the slightly po-faced American stuff. It was anarchic, it didn't care. And it also was hitting the punk uh, vibe because it came out roughly the same time. So before I got into 2000 AD, I self-published my own thing uh, with another artist called Brett Ewins called Sometime Stories, which you see here. Um, That was my first exposure to the so-called comics industry, which involved a comic book guy who ran a comic book shop saying, you guys are really talented, I'll fund... Well, he didn't say he'd fund. He'll fund the printing of the comic, but we did it all for nothing. Um, he went out of business and arranged to flood his warehouse for the insurance, and all our comics got <laughs> destroyed. So there's about, like, 200 of these sometimes stories floating around, and that was it. So that was my first education into the, to sort of the business, you know. Um, we also, in that time, had done the second issue, which never got published, and somebody stole the art. So there you go. So <laughs> Began as you mean to go on. That's showbiz. Um, There was a music paper called Sounds, which was a big kind of punk music paper like the New Musical Express in England, and uh, some guy was doing a really crappy script in it, and then he left, and there was this empty space, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to get in there. So 
I put together a bunch of um, pages uh, of this... Of a, uh, and punk was really happening then. And I uh, decided I'd do a punk rock comic uh, called The Electric Hoax. So I sent them into them, photocopies, and they phoned me back and said, hey, this is really great, do you want to do a strip? I said, great, got it, got the gig. And um, so I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial, you know, f- find the opportunities and make them and go for them. So I got my... That was my first sort of... Uh, commercially printed pieces. I was very influenced by a guy called uh, Jamie Reed, who did these Sex Pistols posters, if you remember, all the, the Queen with the blackmail lettering and all that stuff. So you can see the influence there. He used a lot of black and white photocopies. So all the references you can see, um, you know, Patrick McGowan, you know, The Prisoner, Punk Rockers, all that sort of stuff. Um, once I'd been published, I could then send them to 2000 AD and I got to uh, draw Judge Dredd which was the, the sort of... That was the equivalent of doing Batman or something if you were in England. Uh, so um, there was a, that, that was just one of my dread pictures. i just show, show the kind of stuff I was doing. And uh, this was quite a big uh, cover for me, this specific piece of art, because it was the first time I took control of the art, uh, which means I drew it and I got... The big thing was I got control of the colouring, because normally they'd have these kind of old geezers with fags, you know, colouring it, oh, hell do You know, it was all that kind of thing. I didn't care about comics. But, but we were coming in and we really cared about it and we really wanted to do it differently and how we wanted to do it. So that one, that particular cover kind of created a big sort of sensation within the little British comic industry and got me noticed. It was my first kind of breakout kind of thing. Uh, meanwhile, people like Alan Moore are doing Halo Jones, um, you know, Neil Gaiman's doing a Future Shock... All that kind of stuff's happening. So we're building the British invasion. It's starting to happen. And um, Vertigo Comics, before they became Vertigo, we started to headhunt. So Alan Moore was doing Swamp Thing and, they, and Karen Berger, the editor of what was become Vertigo Comics, came over and signed up Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, and then uh, myself and Pete Milligan were going to do Shade the Changing Man for Vertigo. Uh, but in the end, I only ended up doing the covers. I didn't end up doing the interiors. That's another bit of Dread there, just a piece of black and white work, just to sort of, you know, that was my interpretation of the character of Dread. Um, um, around, this, um, around this time, I went off to uh, Australia on a kind of... Uh, I was interested in going up the Himalayas and seeing the Sphinx and all that kind of stuff. I wanted to see the world. And uh, ended up in Australia, and I was very interested in um, surfing. It was, it was like I'd never really seen it before. And, um, and also, when I was there, this film came out called Mad Max 2 and uh, I remember a couple of my friends saying let's go and see uh, Mad Max 2 and I said I remember Mad Max because I'd seen the first one late night in the midnight movie screenings used to get in England which were in porn theatres they'd put on double bills so I saw Mad Max on with the cars that ate Paris which was, a, and I think, you know, Australians, wow, this is, what is it with Aussies and car movies? You know, you think, well. So um, yeah, I thought, oh, know. Mad Max 2, yeah, I'll go and see that. And I've got to say, it, it really changed my life. It turned me around, and I just thought, well, I've got to, you know, I've got to seriously reinvestigate everything now because of this picture. And uh, at the same time, I thought, you know, surfing and Mad Max, that's a good combo. So I developed this thing called Freakwave, the writer Pete Milligan. So that was one of my, um, and it's a more psychedelic version. You can see the influence of the mighty Wes in there, you know. Um, so, um, so that was the, one of the uh, pages. That was, in fact, the first page of Freakwave. Uh, so you've got this drifter, lone warrior on a surfboard rather than in a car, you know. So basically it was just me retreading Road Warrior and, um, but on water. 
Um, for, there, for example, you've got an African stilt village made out of greyhound buses. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, and um, that Freakwave strip led to an American publisher offering me my own comic called Strange Days, which I did with Pete Milligan and Brett Ewens. And uh, that was the kind of character now morphing. At the time, gender bender, George, boy George, Pete Burns stuff was happening. So, so this guy looked like Pete Burns from Dead or Alive. Uh, so that was Strange Days number one, quite an iconic cover featuring Freakwave. And by this time, Freakwave was mutating into the adventures of this character called Captain Cracking and his merry meringues. Yes, I was smoking weed. <laughs> <laughs> As you can tell by that picture. A bunch of people sit around looking completely wasted. Um, and um, I, this is a bit squashed. Uh, but also I'm starting to experiment then now. I'm trying to look into panel borders and design within the comic and how the work to text fits into stuff. And it was an interesting strip about these giant heads, which I, the idea I nicked off Zardos, if you remember that movie. Uh, and this was the giant head of the Mad Hatter, and inside it was Captain Cracking and his merry meringues. And, um, but if, I was also looking at Matisse and his cutouts and all that stuff. This is all pre-digital, so it was done through cutting up paper and putting it together. And uh, the great thing about comics is you could just explore any idea you wanted. At that time, it was still slightly free, a very freewheeling industry. And um, you could go where you wanted with it. And we had big chunks of writing, you know, word balloons. We were just really just exploding the industry and putting it back together again. Alan Moore was doing his, you know, very cinematic grid watchman stuff. Frank Miller's also cinematic. So that really became the dominant kind of mode. This stuff was less cinematic. I, I, I personally don't love cinematic comics. I like cinema but I like, think that comics have a much wider ability to go into any kind of area you want. You're only dealing with words and pictures in the end. Um, this was a strangely prophetic picture because it, I did it at the same time and then later Mad Ma uh, Thunderdome came out and it was like, wow. It was like things... There's going to be something connecting me to Mad Max, you know, and uh, that was just a, a page... That was just one panel from uh, this strip called Freakwave. Uh, but, it, you know, with the ruined opera house and all that sort of stuff. And um, um, later on, you know, obviously I was to get involved in Fury Road, but it, it's... it's I, mean, I mean, when I look at stuff like that, I do think... Sometimes you think, is there a hidden hand and is there such a thing as fate? I have to wonder sometimes because it just seemed too bizarre, you know. Um, after Freakwave, I wanted to do a superhero, and I was totally bored with superheroes of, like, you know, you shot my parents, therefore I'm going to become a bat and avenge crime, or I've... You know, whatever the thing is, you know, it seemed to be quite melodramatic, the reason people became superheroes. I thought, what if somebody like me became a superhero? Like, I'm not that bothered either way about most things. I'm a bit of a slacker. <laughs> I probably am smoking a joint, and I'm drinking beer. Oh, there I am there. So I developed a character with Pete Milligan called Paradax, who was basically a bad boy slacker as a superhero. Uh, all he wanted to do was get laid, get famous, and get rich. Um, so that was the character of Paradox, which at the time was a very radical and different approach to um, the superhero. Now it's pretty standard. Um, it's not that big a deal. But at the time, it was, this was concurrent with The Watchmen and all that stuff. Big influence on Grant Morrison doing things like Zenith and Jamie Hewlett going on to do Tank Girl. Um, here's Paradox again, just some uh, shots of the character. 
hip-hop was quite big at the time in New York, and I'd never been to New York, so I would sort of like make up this version of New York, which I thought, I hope, was a bit accurate. Um, you know, also, I quite like, you know, there he is urinating in an alleyway. Um, he's sitting there in his underpants with his girlfriend, just completely frustrated with him. Uh, you know, he, he, I mean, it was really different to Bruce Wayne or, you know that kind of stuff. Um, he had his, basically his costume gave him the ability to walk through walls. So here he is walking in on a dominatrix and then thinking, hmm, later on smoking a giant spliff, thinking, if I do this well, I could be as rich as Michael Jackson. You know, that sort of stuff. So um, you get the sort of feeling. It was semi-underground, but really what it was was proto-indie. The indie thing hadn't really coalesced into independent comics at this stage, but it, it was pre-indie. But it was in spirit, it was indie, really. Um, this is a later story of Paradise. I didn't do very much of it. I have a tendency to get bored very quickly with stuff. And um, the insane people was... Uh, you can see in the background there the giant character. That's Giant Richard, as opposed to Little Richard. You know, stuff like that, <laughs> stupid stuff. Um, Dr Sex is the character there with the giant dick stick. <clears throat> um, that was Paradise's... Uh, my my favourite villain of his was Jack Empty, who's basically... Uh, He's a depressive, and if you listen to him, you fall into the worst depression ever, and basically he, de- he, he defeats you by depressing you. <laughs> so his, his line there is, listen, if you are really lucky, you will die lonely, bitter and frustrated after a long and crippling illness. <laughs> Jack empty. <laughs> uh, so he was based on the T.S. Eliot idea of the hollow men. He had his you know, insides eaten out by crows. Um, and that, this book is uh, it's down in the foyer somewhere, I think. It's a collection that came out recently of all the classic 80s stuff I did with Pete Milligan. He was, the right, he was my kind of creative foil then. Um, Merck and the Mystic was a kind of a psychedelic Oscar Wilde character. It was really f- a lot of fun to do. We had a lot of fun um, with that character. Um, and I enjoyed sort of stylistically... Um, you know, I was bringing up a bit of Aubrey Beardsley into the line work and stuff, and also Yellow Submarine, so that kind of fusion. Um, sooner or later was was the it was another strip I did for 2000 AD. I thought it was the only one that started off with a close up of Guy's armpit, um, <laughs> and it was it ended up on the back of the 2000 AD uh, comic. It was there every week on the back. Um, so, you know, it was, it was quite... There was a kind of, like... I quite like being perverse and freaking out 2000 AD readers. So the guy's sort of shaving his chest with a, uh, with a shaver. Um, this was my most notorious comic that got banned. Um, it's about a thalidomide skinhead who decides to go and track down the people who put out the drug thalidomide, ends up chopping the arms off the CEO of the company, tying them onto himself and jumping out of the window, going, fuck! <laughs> right? <laughs> and the caption says, and you know what? None of the fuckers could see the funny side of it. <clears throat> <laughs> anyway, what happened was the... Um, it was written in the style of a 14-year-old working-class kid who spoke like that, and... Um, um, the printers refused to print it. The lawyers said, what on earth is... You know, Robert Maxwell, who was running the publishing company, um, who was, you know, notoriously corrupt, we found out, uh, objected to it. So the thing got um, banned, and then Penguin Books decided they were going to publish it, and then they read it, so actually, no, we're not. And, uh, <laughs> and it just went round... It got passed around every publisher in England. And... Um, uh, eventually, Kevin Eastman, who was flush with money from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 
because I worked on the movie and designed the turtles for the first one, um, said, fuck it, you know what, I'm going to print it and I'll fight a court case. And uh, I thought, oh, great, thanks. Anyway, so he published it and it came out to great acclaim and in the end we had no problem. But that was about five years it took that one to come out. So um, it's a good anecdote for the talk shows, but when you're a, work- you're a working artist, you don't get paid because your work's been banned. Mm-hmm. It actually, sort of, you think, oh, I wish we could get this published. But uh, it's one of my favourite skin, just because you always love your most difficult birth. Um, there he is. Ah. It, was based, it was based on uh, your real-life observation, wasn't it? Was, it was, yeah, yeah. Uh, I grew up when the skinheads first came out, and they used to wear shirts called Ben Sherman shirts, which had a short uh, sleeve to them. And there used to be this little skinhead guy walking around who was thalidomide. It looked like that. And I often wondered, you know, like... As George Miller was saying earlier uh, in the thing, is sometimes an idea gets into your head and it won't go away. And I held that image of that little skinhead guy probably for about ten years and told the story to Pete Milligan. And then Pete Milligan delivered a script to me that was one of the best scripts I've ever read, comic or film or whatever. It was just... And this was pre-sort of any political angle on skinheads. It was the yeah, youth culture. Yeah, yeah, but at the same... Yeah, it was pre-all the, the National Front right-wing stuff. It, that skinheads were allied with the Rude Boys of, from West Indian culture, which is where they got the fashion from. They were an outgrowth of mods, really, mm. you know. Um, after that, I did Rogan Gosh, which was a kind of Bollywood Blade Runner before the hip, hipsters got on to... Uh, Bollywood as a hip thing. I used to live where I grew up in London was next to Southall, which was an Indian where all the Indian people used to go and live. And used to go down there and have a curry and buy weird gold statues of Ganesha and stuff like that. But they also had their own comics. So I used to collect Indian comics, you know, just because they were bizarre and, you know, different artists and about different things, mainly about Hindu deities. So I wanted to do something. Like uh, nobody had done Indian sci-fi before. It was a completely new thing. I thought, wow, Indian science fiction, that'd be really good. So, um, so Rogan Gosh, named after the Indian meal, uh, Rogan Gosh. Uh, and, you know, you had things like a sitar ray gun, which, you know, you tune up and use sonics to destroy stuff. So I thought he looked pretty cool. I was always imagining Johnny, a younger Johnny Depp playing uh, the Carmonaut. He was a Carmonaut, so it was like an Indian Terminator. Um, there he is there. Uh, That's a page from Rogan Gosh, and I just want to just—I thought I'd show it because um, it's sort of, it's not really very cinematic at all, is it? I mean, but uh, also the character at the top is a pun on the word Brahman. So that's all that is, you know. But uh, I just sort of—it's there, you know, if you want to find it. Um, but you know how it was handwritten and the writing goes around the stuff. Uh, you know, I'm still telling a story. The narrative's moving, but I'm not necessarily wanting to tell it like it's a movie. Uh, and that's uh, just that was just a picture of Rogan Gosh. It just I, I, I like the fact that I could then design robots in an Indian style. I thought it was really good. I haven't seen it before. Really different. I mean, one day I'm sure somebody's going to do a really great Indian themed sci-fi gig. Um, these were covers for Shade the Changing Man. You know, again the big Andy Warhol influence on the kind of very abrasive black and white look. Um, very, they were really far out. Vertigo, you know, at the time, there was myself, Dave McKean, he was doing Sandman, I was doing Shade. Um, and this was, this never got published. This was a, um, a kind of rap kind of superhero called uh, Yo Yo. I was going to do it for a 2000 AD. In the end, it never happened for whatever reason. I think I might have done a movie instead. And um, at that point, uh, this was about a 10 year period I'd just gone through and shown you. I, um, comics were changing, I was getting a bit 
I'd sort of got, was getting a bit bored with it. And um, I, so that was the last, pretty much the last stuff I did in comics. And uh, I think I, I, I started to work in pop videos. This was a pop video designs for Michael Jackson doing bad. Um, just, just when we did this one, which is what he wanted, but him dancing with all these kids, all the allegations about the kids came out. So this got scrapped, and he did this video with him and Naomi Campbell, sort of like being all hot together and steamy, to prove that he was a red-blooded male. Nothing funny about Michael. So that video got w- walloped. Um, but that's the, so I started moving into, going back into... Um, well, I'd never worked in it before, pop videos and stuff. I was working with a guy called Steve Barron, who's probably the number one pop video director, and your own Russell Mulcahy. Uh, and all those directors started to get taken up into the film movie business. And Steve got uh, the first... Teen- he said, have you heard of a thing called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? And I said, yeah, do it. And um, Russell had just done Highlander and approached me to do Highlander 2. So um, suddenly I started moving into film, and it was good because I'd been getting bored with doing comics. So there's the Ninja Turtles, and I was trying, trying to give them a bit of, uh, you know, some kind of bit of attitude and stuff like that. There's, you know, storyboards, production drawings, that kind of stuff. I mean, you can see how you can just flow from comics into this stuff pretty easily. And um, the director liked, uh, you know, just to keep producers off his back, he liked things like one-sheets where you'd see you know, possible camera angles and, you know, th- what the characters might look like uh, as in the movie. And, um, you know, so I would produce things like this as well. Um, this is storyboards from Highlander 2. Now, Highlander 2 could have been a great movie, but it, it was one of those ones that is a total nightmare of production where the producers just r- sort of rape the director and it's just horrible. And... Um, we came up, myself and Russell really put a load of work into the storyboarding of this. It was going to be a really just, I think, better than the first Highlander, which is, you know, one of the great sci-fi, sci-fi movies of the 80s. And um, just, it, it, it was one of those films that just fell apart and uh, didn't work. Um, I went on, um, the director, Steve Barron, after Ninja Turtles, got offered Coneheads by a guy called Lorne Michaels, who's a a big deal in America. He's the guy who does Saturday Night Live and all this stuff. Now, we never got Saturday Night Live in England, so I didn't know any, I didn't know any of these people who they were, you know. I'd just about heard of Dan Aykroyd, obviously I did, through the Blues Brothers and stuff. But Coneheads was basically lifted off Zippy the Pinhead. Um, and so I met Lorne Michaels, and he said, OK, I want you to design a sci-fi movie, but it's got to be funny sci-fi. I said, OK, funny sci-fi. All right, so... Um, uh, and also, the, you can see it on YouTube. It was the last film to use stop-frame animation, like in the old Ray Harryhausen style, for there's, a, there's an alien monster at the end. And uh, after that, it became uh, CGI with Jurassic Park. But Phil Tippett, who's a brilliant uh, stop-frame animator, produced... The last, this, there's a monster at the end, done stop frame. So that was really good fun. I was starting to learn a lot working on films like this. I do remember, I didn't know, it was my first job in Hollywood. I had a little office, which was about as big as that place there. And I could see Odd out the window, which was the end of the Hollywood sign, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I remember my first meeting with uh, Lorne Michaels, who's like a really big deal in American like, film and TV. And uh, I'd never heard of him. And uh, so we're all standing there, and he's saying, OK, and I want this film, uh, you know, this, this, this. And, um, and it's going to look really great, and it won't be... And we don't want to do noir, because noir doesn't sell. Got it? And I said, what about Batman? 
and suddenly everybody went completely quiet and took a step back, and I was, uh, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> and he sort of gave me this look and uh, sort of forgave me, I suppose, and um, didn't fire me on the spot. But uh, anyway, so it was fun, you know. It was good fun working with Dan Aykroyd and Adam Sandler and all those guys, you know, when they were just kind of breaking into movies. There's some more sort of Conehead stuff there, um, you know. Anyway, you do tons, tons of all this stuff. Pinocchio was, could have been a good movie, didn't work, one of those films that just didn't happen. You know, I mean, it got made, but it wasn't very good. I mean, they got this... Uh, I mean, they did stuff like... They would do things like the producers came along and said, we want you cast so-and-so as the boy who's going to become... when Pinocchio becomes a boy. And the boy was basically this chubby American kid with blonde hair who was in this hit sitcom. And that was the only reason he was being cast. So we had to make... I had to change all the designs of Pinocchio to look like this kid. It was quite weird. He was a chubby kid who'd eaten too many cheeseburgers, you know. <laughs> Thunderbirds would have been great. Uh, this was a, with a really good director as well. And Working Title, who were a big British production company, in the end, they got cold feet, they got scared, and they said, let's do it like One Direction and make all the Thunderbirds young kids. So you might... They did this terrible version of Thunderbirds, which I had nothing to do with, but I did do an original Thunderbirds with a good director called Peter Hewitt, who was a really interesting direct, uh, director at the time. That's just one of the con- concept pieces. Um, you know, I was looking at, you know, we were trying to re- redesign but keep the spirit of Thunderbirds, uh, Thunderbird 3 there, um, different costumes, look, you know, the T and the Thunderbird, that sort of stuff. So it was a live-action Thunderbirds. Gulliver's Travels, I did a year on writing and designing a Gulliver's Travels, which would have been computer-animated IMAX. Um, didn't get made in the end, just for loads of things you do, never get made. But I learnt a lot about 3D and, um, you know, the interocular distance from, you know, like, it, it's a really weird thing, is that you have to, you put on goggles and you've got to design where a, a non-existent object is in front of your eyes. You know, so when, say in 3D, you want to plot where the object comes or where it goes past you. All that kind of stuff. It was really fascinating learning all that stuff, but um, sadly it didn't get made. So they're just sort of at the at the bottom there. You can see some of the kind of storyboards I do, which are try and suggest the 3D, big feet walking over the camera into shots and stuff like that. So this was about ten years now of doing movies. I put this in as the weirdest film I've ever been involved in. It was basically about the Nazis. Hitler escapes the bunker, goes into Antarctica, into a hollow earth. Genetic experiments continue and they um, fuse themselves with bats. So you've got all these Nazi bats who hold rallies hanging from the ceiling, going, <laughs> he you know, but up, up there, you know. Anyway, inside this hollow earth are all these lava pools with all these hot babes. Like, if you remember these Russ Mayer films with all these buxom women that would always be sweating. So this is the craziest... It was this kind of homage to B-movies or something. And uh, so that was some of the production art I was doing, you know, of um, Amazonian girls in mud pools fighting Nazi, Nazi vixens, you know. You think, OK. They had vehicles, and there were the two... There were two of some of the bat-cloned character, bat characters, Colonel Kirst, you know, and they were all sort of, you know, they spoke in that Nazi kind of, you know, that... Und, und, und. You know, that fast bit at the end, they always sort of do that. Um, and there was the, this was the craziest thing of all. The, Hitler had become... Because we're cloning, you get a lot of errors in the genetics. He'd become an albino, so he had white hair, white moustache and pink eyes, but he was a bat. You know, you think, what? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> anyway, I put it in just to show you. Now and then you get one that's really bonkers, which, you know, it's quite good fun. Anyway, it never got made. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this was a very significant show for me, Reboot. It was the first long-form CGI animation, and uh, it preceded Pixar, DreamWorks, all that stuff. And it kind of um, had a big part to play in me getting involved with Fury Road. Um, it was a sci-fi TV series shown around the world, big hit. The character there with the chrome dreadlocks and the blue skin became like the first um, sort of digital icon, if you like. And, um, and then, you know, you sort of see Avatar 15 years later and you just think how much, you know, CGI has just gone bananas. And so that at the time was state of the art. Now it looks pretty crude. But... Um, I did loads of that stuff. I did about three seasons of that. I did tons of CGI. I did another series called... Which was basically Braveheart in Space. It was called War Planets. Uh, I designed all the characters for it. And... Uh, sorry, I'll just go... Whoops. What did I do? I just turned it off, haven't I? I knew I'd do something. Do you know how to do that? I, I don't. I'll just sorry. be pressing buttons as well. We might need oh. a, a tech board out here. Oh, there you okay. go. Here we go. I worked at Fury Road. Let me just go back to... Um, yeah, OK. After that, I did Weirdos, which uh, had a bearing on... Um, Weirdos was a rip-off of the Big Daddy Roth Hot Rod model kits from the 60s. Uh, and then I did an episode, which is a pastiche of Mad Max 2, called Bad Bob, uh, as opposed to Mad Max. And um, we animated it and did the episode, and I put a little sign on it saying, whatever happened to Mad Max? Question mark. This is now 15 years after Thunderdome. And I sent it to Kennedy Miller in Australia, just for a, you know, why not? Just, just so they'd probably get a kick out of... Because we pastiched uh, Mad Max 2, and it's all, you know, guys stroking a puppy, saying, you disappoint me, you puppy, you know, and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, so, um, eventually, uh, you know, I, I did meet uh, George and Doug Mitchell in Hollywood, and we, uh, you know, and I... Chewed George's ears off about Mad Max. My God, you know, Mad Max, when you did that shot. And, and, um, uh, and eventually, George hired me to work with him on a putative new Mad Max, which he'd called Fury Road. And um, this is from about 10 years ago. It was just a mock up for a possible graphic novel that eventually they came out, you know, recently. You've seen them. But that was just a, just a mock up, just to. Uh, just to sort of feature Fury Road and really how doing the animated. CGI animation connected to George, connected to Fury Road, and then George... I remember once sitting in the Metro uh, with George and Fury Road, George started wobbling up to me like this, and I think, what's up with him? And he goes to me, um, dancing penguins, what do you reckon? And then, he, <laughs> and then he wandered off again. I thought, sounds all right. <laughs> and then, lo and behold, you know, we know what that turned into. Um, Here's a picture of me and George the day we finished the story of Fury Road. And we used to work on these things called electroboards, which are giant whiteboards which you can print out from. And uh, that's, that, on that pictogram which we're standing next to is the entire story in little pictures of the whole Fury Road story. That's dated 1997, is it? I can't remember. Some, no. 99. Uh, 99, that one. That was right. We had done it all by then. Um... So, a little bit of history. I think James Nicholas took that shot. 
I'm just going to show you a couple of things from Fury Road that, that you won't be aware of, just because, you know, I worked on the film. I did, we just did a talk on it, so I won't go into it in too much detail. But um, this is an Electra board printout of an ending we had, which we scrapped, where the Fury Road itself ends directly on a sheer cliff drop. And the whole film, the climax of the film, is the whole armada's following them, and they're driving towards this drop... And at the last minute, she, managed, she flips... By then, they're only in the rig. They've got rid of the um, tank. And she flips the rig, and it goes down this side uh, road that goes down under this cloud cover. And the rest of the armada careers off the edge. Some of them manage to halt in time, including the warlord. And then from out of this cloud comes these, like, harpies, these, uh, uh, these flying... This, these, they're called these rotor raiders, these flying women this tribe of women that live under the cloud cover, who are then, who then in the film, eventually evolved into the Volvolini. But for a while, we were looking into that as the ending, and there would actually be a battle between men and women. You know, actually, it was that sort of on the nose, really, about all that stuff. And you can see things like there, you can see where, the, you can see just at the top, you can see that the citadel was designed as a phallic symbol, that it was vertical, and that where the Volvolini lived, it was, you know, convex. You know, so I mean, very obvious stuff. We were basically, I, I, you know, I nicked it off two thousand and one, a space odyssey. You know, the sperm spaceship that goes towards the big planet. You know, all those things that Kubrick did. Um, but anyway, we didn't go there. But just to show you, like, how our thought processes were going and how different ideas were considered. Here's a few more drawings where that idea was being worked up. Like, you know, the uh, the, the big curve shapes and the the small. You know, again, uh, you know, looking at Kubrick, and there's one of the um, rotor raiders with a harp. She's been harpooned by the warlord's war rig. Then the war rig was a very big, long, phallic-shaped uh, vehicle. Um, it became then the double caddy in the final thing. But uh, you know, we were sort of just exploring ideas at that time, and uh, you know, you, just to give you an idea of could have gone that way, could have gone this way. You know, that's um, that's an old drawing. I just stuck the logo on top of it of very early designs, probably the earliest designs for the, what we call the polecats, the guys who used to go bend on the poles. And um, what I was doing, I was looking at... It's basically based on the Ned Kelly mask, you know, the, the slit visor. So it's basically a Ned Kelly mask with four wheels underneath it. Um, just trying to kind of tune into that Sydney Nolan, you know, Australian mythological stuff. Um, that's a shot of a buzzard, you know, just one of our production drawings. I don't think that was in the book. That was, again, the, where they were... Here, in this one, they were, he, Nux was, was like a torridor. He was t- treating the um, buzzard like a bull. You know, he was spearing it, right, with Max on the uh, thing at the front. I don't think... That's not in the movie now, but uh, I think they do it in a different way. Um, there's the, the, the guys. That's a, I think that was in the book. Um, but just showing you how some of the designs were just... Instantly, we had them, like the... Um, the bullet farmer and the people eater. We had them, first drawing, we had them. They didn't really change that much. As you notice, the warlord doesn't have the hair. Uh, and it was the actor, Hugh Keys Burns, who said, George told me this because I said, who thought of the hair? The hair was fantastic. And because really, if you're, doing about, if you're doing a film about a corrupt patriarchy and all that kind of stuff, the ultimate patriarch is God the Father. So you think of Michelangelo and that famous picture and God with all the flowing white hair. Think of Zeus, you know, and it was just perfect, and it was so right that he would have that hair. Um, That was the very first drawing I did ever on Fury Road. 
So it's interesting that things like the paint around the mouth was there, but it wasn't chrome. So you can see how the idea evolved, and then it became shiny and chrome and all that stuff. At the t- time, it was that we wanted, them, we wanted to use spray, because you know, there's something about spray that felt right. And then once it became spray on their mouths, rather than spraying stuff, then it really took off the idea. And that idea stayed all the way through till it got refined into shiny and chrome. And then decorating the tumours. I mean, there it was really over the top. Uh, but, uh, you know, Larry and Barry in the movie, all that kind of stuff. Actually, Larry and Barry are originally a pair of glove puppets that one of the people driving the car would wear when he was driving. And we'd have these two <laughs> glove puppets, so it looked like these... And there was going to be bits where they'd say, Larry, no, I'm not Larry. And so they'd be squeaking to each other uh, while the guy was driving. You're going to do shots over his shoulder with Larry and Barry. Or you do shots outside the windscreen with these two ridiculous puppets driving the car. <laughs> you know? But in the end, we ditched that, kept Larry and Barry, and they became Nux's tumours. Amazing, you just say this stuff, you go, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a uh, old little dodging cars mounted on hoverboards. The idea was to um, lure vehicles into quicksand. You know, it was an idea, didn't make it. But, uh, you know, just to show you... Again, that was the ending there with the platform where Max goes up with Furiosa. Um, it was there for a while, um, that was when we, there was the guys who, the, the, rock, the rock riders, the guys who'd go around the canyon, originally were going to be inside a, a vitrified city on broken down bits of freeway and stuff like that. So there's the shot of um, the truck going into this canyon, which is a canyon of buildings. Uh, that's a shot. It's a bit grainy, this one, because it's off a photocopy. But uh, again, you get the idea of what that, that could have been that, but in the end, it moved over to being a rock canyon. Uh, you know, that feeling of trying to evoke John Ford through making ruined buildings look like Mises, you know, uh, in the classic Ford westerns. So just to, so that's just a little bit of Fury Road, just to give you an idea of, you know, where bits we tried and got rid of and moved on from. Uh, I, I, after um, a bit of uh, film stuff, I, 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 Marvel approached me and said, would I like to do uh, Doctor Strange? And I said, yeah. And they said, the, the editor was editing Spider. He said, if you put Spidey in it, I can, get to, I can green light it. And I said, all right, I'll do it. So I just wanted to show you, when I lived in, I lived in Australia for five years and I came here when I was young, and I was really, I got really into Aboriginal stuff in their painting and stuff, blew me away. I saw the Papunya Tula exhibition at the New South Wales Gallery. And it, I, I saw that exhibition about ten times. I just went back and looked and looked at it. I just want to show you, like, how that influenced my uh, comic book pages and stuff like that, you know. You've got a sh- you know, cinematically, you've got a down shot, you've got a wide shot, and you've got a close-up. No big deal. I'm using the sound effect, crunch, 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 and I'm doing it in a staccato fashion to give you the feeling of a scrunching noise. So how I draw the sound effect is illustrating the type of sound you're hearing in your mind. Then I, was, I wanted to use, give it a hot tropical feeling, so I used Aboriginal dot motifs, which also the wind is blowing, and you're hearing... And he is saying, he's hearing a voice on the wind, it says, who? So I've got, so you just, I just want to show you how things can fuse in and out of each other visually, how you've got Aboriginal dot pattern becoming the word who, and how the crunch sound comes through it. And you've got to remember, all this is taking place in your mind. You know, you're hearing it. 
the audio is here. It's not on the page, obviously, which is what I was saying earlier, that, that comics and film are two, two totally different mediums. And why I'm not personally very interested in comics that ape films all the time. I find it boring. I'll, when I'm doing storyboards and working on film, I'll be filmic. But when I'm doing comics, I want to play and move it into new territory, if I can. Or do the things that only comics can do. Yeah, exactly. Um, here's uh, an Aboriginal character who was a sorceress <laughs> called Miss Ningaril. And um, she's wearing a pair of Gadachi shoes. I got very interested in Aboriginal sorcery and magic. And um, uh, Doctor Strange meets her in a dimension where she's gone walkabout in a kind of an, a dreamtime place. Uh, and, um, you know, I just wanted to do a... a, 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 a I, I hadn't seen a female Aboriginal sorcerer before as a character. So um, she's now in the pantheon of Marvel characters. She's also wearing Wes's feathers, by the way. That's just a little... Uh, for Bad Max too. That's just a little in-joke. Um, I was going for quite full psychedelic yellow submarine, as you can see there. That's just a page from it. Just to show you again, it's not very filmic, but I think it's interesting. You know, it's a, that one at the, the panel at the bottom with the floating matches, he's saying, look, a, a, a shoal of sentient matchsticks, and their word balloon is flame. They're speaking in flame, and he's saying, I'm sorry, I don't speak fluent match. Here's a, like a collage, more of a collage effect. First, Doctor Strange is moving through these, these dimensional realms in this yellow submarine type thing, using medieval woodcuts, you know, bits of uh, alchemical lettering. You know, it's, Doctor Strange is an occult theme, so I wanted to use that kind of stuff. So just to show you, again, my feeling about comics is that when comics ape films, they're making it easy for the filmmakers... I think we should go really far out and make, let film catch up with us rather than keep coming back to film all the time. Um, it's just another page from it. Again, I was using just dropping type in a different way on it. And this was the villain, this, um, spy, this basically this giant spider character. Uh, and he basically says, A human soul, prepare it immediately. I shall have it with custard. <clears throat> I thought it was a... Um, these are some of the comics I was doing at the time as well. This is for DC Comics, believe it or not, where you're getting the influence of things like cubism stuff in there in the comics. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite interested in different styles, experimenting all the time. Um, oh, whoops, sorry, that was... Uh, yeah, again, here, this is where I pretty much have abandoned the whole idea of sequential panels. You, there's, a, you know, there's a balloon, there's a piece of text, there's some more balloons, and there's an archive found piece of dialogue, you know. But that comes from being at art school and studying, you know, collage or the surrealist or the dadist or something like that. Um, that was one just creatively... You've got four panels in a row that you can read in a row, but the drawings are moving through the panels. You know, you can see how... Really, it's one picture, but each panel has different elements. Um, so some, 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 somebody's calling it a meta-narrative, but uh, that's a bit too much for me. <laughs> This was uh, this. They, they this got banned. This one on the left. They said to me, "It's about two teenagers. They're about to go to a fancy dress party. They're dressed as Batman and Superman. They're drinking beer and watching their dad's porn." And they said, "You can't have Superman and Batman drinking beer and watching porn." I said, "But they're not Superman and Batman. They're two kids dressed as Superman as Batman." I said, "No, didn't fly." <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make a big deal out of it. So the, the panel, the page to the right of it is, I just basically changed the colours and changed. 
the, the kid dressed as uh, Batman. I think he's got. A, I just took a, a, a rabbit symbol and called him Rabbit Fighter or something. You know. Anyway, um, this is a, a pastiche of a '60s Batman cover where Batman's fighting a tribe of hands. I thought um, hands have always been interesting, very overlooked things, aren't they? You know, and. Um, I had an idea for sort of like a horror film. I thought, wouldn't it be horrifying if sort of like people are genetically making sort of hands, you know, like to put onto people who lose their hands. But one of the hands becomes intelligence and makes other hands that are intelligent and they, they break out and there's a swarm of them like rats. So you see all these hats, you know, loads of rat hands running everywhere up and down the place. And then I imagined sort of some guy kind of sleeping and then he's going, huh, and then he's got these hands like on his neck strangling him. And uh, so, hence, you've got two little hands on round Batman strangling him and the big hand, which is controlling them all. Um, some people have voted that the weirdest Batman story ever done. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good accolade. Yeah. Um, Swimming Purpose was a book I did. Um, I, had, I have hundreds of pieces of art that can't be published because there isn't anywhere for them to go. They're not comic books, they're not, you know... So uh, I got a, a, a very small uh, a boutique publisher said, why don't we put them all together into 250 pages called Swim Any Purpose? And how are we doing for time? Oh, another 10 minutes or so. All right. I'm going to move fast. So there it is. And so it's stuff like that. You can see the Aboriginal influence in drawings like that still. Um, so these are just... And again, I do digital paintings, which quite strongly influence, you know, Robert Motherwell sort of stuff. The book is incredible. There was only about 500 copies made. That's right, yeah. I've only just seen it. So these are just sort of the pictures that go into it. The Zorsa Zilk is a recent... Uh, create, you know, I created it myself, the Zorsa Zilk, with, a, with a, another writer on it. He, it's kind of like Willy Wonka meets David Bowie sort of stuff. It's sort of fairly... I called it a glamatronic fantasia. Um, so that's the kind of art for the pages where I'm using, you know, images like he's gone to visit the tailor of tales, a guy who makes up stories. So hence I put in fabrics around it. And he's tracking down a pair of these things called fancy pants, which if you jump into these trousers, walk you around and take you into different dimensions. Right? <clears throat> that's a pitch. That's how I do my pictures for comics. That's called The Deleted, about a guy who gets downloaded into a game world, doesn't realise he's a game until, he, you know, too late. Um, that's the cover of it. That's about a sort of goth girl who... Um, I won't go into it, but just, again, this is a pitch uh, for something that was going to be for Vertigo, didn't do it in the end. Um, that's an interesting one. That's a, uh, I really love that film, The Last Wave, Peter Weir's film, stunning. And um, So I had this idea for a, a kind of, a, you know, a serial killer, kind of seven meets the last wave set around Sydney in the Opera House and it climax in Luna Park. Um, so just to show you some drawings. Travesty, he's a like, unemployed kid who is a superhero at night. I live in a cardboard box in the underpass. I help people, but they tell me I need a bath. <laughs> <coughs> Wrong hands. Now, this is, uh, I'll just get onto this. This is what I've just finished. I just handed it in. It's a graphic novel, 100 pages. I handed it in last uh, Tuesday. Uh, this is the original drawings. Um, you know, I keep sketchbooks and drop things down. Dream Gang is uh, kind of like, if you like, the X Men meets Inception. It's about people who project themselves into dream worlds at night 
will uncover this um, kind of conspiracy to use a meme which will replicate through everybody's night dreams and turn everybody into kind of a perpetual nightmare in the head. So that's the kind of plot, and it's, a, uh, it's about um, this character who a dream, who's in dreams is called Dream Voyager. And um, that's like, that was the pitch cover for it. That's the cover of the first comic. They travel by these footprints called Gideon's Footprints, which are left, this old, these old dream sort of engineers left these footprints in dreams. And if you can find them, they allow you to, if you go down the footprint, they've got steps inside them, they take you into another dream. That's so people travel in between dreams by using Gideon's footprints, so, as you do. Um, that's just a page from Dream Gang. The girl uh, is called Luna. Her costume is like a house at night with a moon. Um, uh, it's, it's the, the sort of story is about memory, and um, uh, that's the forgetting vortex. Uh, basically, uh, it's about being forgotten, as we all will be. And um, statistically, it takes four generations for you to be completely forgotten. Do you know that? And um, uh, it's so I wanted that to be the thing that everybody hates the most in the story. That, that nobody wants to be forgotten. And if you fall into the memory hole, you're forgotten instantly. So a lot of the characters fall, who fall into it, people say, and that you never hear about them again in the story because they've been forgotten. Um, that's just a bit of cinematic stuff. Um, that's sort of... Um, the floating lighthouse with wings is a dream object manufactured by dream engineers. Um, uh, so the whole story is about creating objects in dreams and engineering a consciousness to create different types of reality. It's, quite, it's sort of interesting sort of metaphysical strip, uh, and that's the last piece. That's uh, based on the album cover of Forever Changes by Love. Some of you may know it's considered to be the greatest psychedelic record of the 60s, surpassing Sgt. Pepper's. Um, <clears throat> and I just wanted to mention this guy. He's been a huge inspiration for me, one of the greatest Australians. Um, Martin Sharp creator of the magazine Oz, visually, which I read when I was a kid, this beautiful psychedelic magazine from the, uh, the mid-60s. And um, he was the guy who set up the Friends of Luna Park and stopped that incredible place across the water from being demolished. And, um, and instead of Luna Park, now you would have a set of luxury units. <laughs> but um, Mart Martin, this little guy with long hair, he smoked and... You know, yeah, right. Look, he he really got onto it and and saved that place across the road. And I've just only been in Sydney for a couple of days. I'm flying out again soon. And it was my joy to come down here last night at night and see that beautiful mad clown's face staring at me, thinking, "Thank God it's still here." If there's anything that represents the great anarchic larrikin spirit of Australia, it's that thing over there. Because I feel like we're in danger of being luxury united out of existence, you know. Um, but here he is, Martin, and uh, there were two people I wanted to meet when I was a you know, younger man in Australia. One was Martin Sharp, I did, and I found out he collected my work. And George Miller, I did, and I ended up doing Fury Road with him. So I'm a, I'm a happy camper. <laughs> magnificent, Brendan. 
We've got five, oh, a little sorry. bit less than five minutes to go. I didn't want to interrupt you. It's been an amazing window into the mind of Brendan McCarthy. I think you can see this kind of more imagination in a single panel of Brendan's than you get in most comic books or complete mm. films. Um, look, uh, I will take one question just before we kind of wrap up. If anyone's got anything they want to ask. Hello. Um, Mark Chirillo curated a series of books called Solo. That's right. Well, that was very strange because he was picking the best people in comics and he phoned me up and said, would you like to do the last episode of Solo because there's only 12 and I like your work and I want you to be the weird one at the end of the album. You know, like <laughs> Beatles' Revolver has Tomorrow Never Knows on the end, is what he said. I want you to be that track. Just do whatever you like. There's not going to be any more of them. They're not going to cancel us. So I said, great. And it was the best gig ever. You know, do what you want. And it's one of the most prestigious comic series of the last decade, in a way, you know? So, really, it was fantastic to be in the company of all those giant American artists and stuff. Thanks. I'll ask the last question, just so we've got to move along for the next thing. But I'm fascinated with this idea that the truly brilliant can have mass popularity. Mm. And you talked about the Beatles. When you can despair of popular culture and despair of people's tastes and think you know, no-one ever went broke underestimating the taste right. of the public. But the Beatles are the biggest band ever, The Simpsons is the biggest television programme ever, and things like Mad Max can yeah. absolutely yeah. kind of occupy right. that space. You never seem to have compromised what you've done, but you've still been interested in excellence, having as broad an audience as possible. I'd love to hear you talk about that. Uh, honestly, I did try to do commercials and earn big money and... I tried, but I couldn't do it. I would physically cry when I was drawing some stupid two housewives and a packet of dares. <laughs> I think, uh, no, I'd have to phone them so I can't do it, I'm sorry. So, you know, I've got no choice. You know, I mean, and I've been broke many times, you know, in a career where, you know, it goes like that, you know. So what can you do? But at the same time, you know, I mean, you have no idea the, the, how proud I was to see something like Fury Road be so well-received... And it's a film of absolute integrity, beauty. It's fucking weird. It's, you know, it's mad. It's surreal. And it was successful. You know, and it's of the highest order. You know, it's George at Kubrick level. To me, it is now. You know, it's just something special. It is. It feels like it's entered the cultural bloodstream. It'll be something like Blade yeah. Runner that'll... I mean, yeah. like oh, Mad Max totally. already was. Oh, it's, but... oh, it's already yeah. as good as Terminator, yeah. Alien, Blade Runner, all that stuff. Mad Max, Fury Road is yep. up there with Road Warrior. Yep. And it was. It was one of those films I remember coming out of it and going, I cannot believe Hollywood made this. It's sort yeah. of... It's yeah. mad. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, my, you know, I pinched myself that I had anything to do with it, you know, really. You know, it's stunning. Thanks for listening. For more episodes featuring other storytellers from the Graphic Festival, subscribe to Graphic on iTunes. The theme music for the Graphic Podcast is by Dan Shepherd. Graphic Festival is a presentation of the Sydney Opera House. Thank you.